98K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. The Legal Aid Department rejects a claim from a student shot in the chest by the police, saying the officer only used reasonable force. Lawmaker Ted Hoy reports being struck by a car he says has been following him for days. And foreign domestic workers accuse the police of targeting them over coronavirus gathering restrictions. The Legal Aid Department has refused to grant funding to a teenager who's pursuing a personal injury claim against the police officer who shot him in the chest during a protest last year. The department says it believes the force used against the student was reasonable. Tom McAlinden has details. Jung Chi Kin was shot in the chest with live ammunition at close range in Chunwan during a protest on October the 1st last year, leaving him critically ill in hospital for a time. He was later charged with rioting and assaulting police. A letter sent to him from the legal aid department says his application for funding for a compensation bid has been refused because he's failed to show he has reasonable grounds for the proceedings. The department also says that having considered all the evidence, it opines that the use of force by the police was reasonable. Pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong, who's posted the letter on his Facebook page, says the teenager is appealing against the decision. Mr Wong says it's yet another assault on the rule of law and judicial independence and casts doubt as to whether the presumption of innocence still holds in Hong Kong. In response to media inquiries regarding the decision, the Legal Aid Department says it considers the background and evidence for each case as well as relevant legal principles when deciding whether it passes the merit test. A spokesman also says all applications are vetted by lawyers with advice sought from outside counsel if complicated legal matters are involved. Democratic Party lawmaker Ted Hoy says he suffered slight injuries this evening after being hit by a car which has been following him for days. Mr Hoy says he was struck by the vehicle after going up to the occupants to ask who they were. Multiple police officers were called to the scene on Sand Street in Kennedy Town. A video posted online appears to show an officer dragging the legislator to the ground as the car drives away. Mr Hoy says he was later told by police that the two people in the car were journalists, but he doesn't understand why they let them go. Police have classified the case as a traffic accident with a person injured. In recent weeks, a number of pro-democracy figures in the city have complained that they're being followed. Foreign domestic workers say police are discriminating against them by dispersing them from the places they meet up on their days off and hitting some with $2,000 gathering ban fines. Concerned groups are now calling on the government to open community community centres to help us so they don't have to sit on the streets during the pandemic. Sringatin is a spokeswoman for the Asian Migrants Coordinating Body. We feel discriminated uh, because uh, why on this Sunday of police and also the Hong Kong authority come to us and to check domestic worker. Uh, and why only domestic worker not allowed to leave the employer house while our employer family, they can leave their house anytime. Why we feel safe with community center? Because community center is designed from the government and we hope it's free. Another medical expert has expressed reservations over a health code system pro-Beijing politicians are proposing, which would require people to prove they've tested negative for coronavirus before being allowed in places like malls and restaurants. Infectious disease specialist Joseph Chung says those taking part in the scheme could become too complacent, while infected people showing no symptoms may still spread the virus as they move about the city. He says it would be better if only those working in high-risk sectors like restaurants, markets and public transport used such a system. We are not uh, encouraging people to go here and there and enjoy their life uh, in the city. So I think the health code 
should only be used for public health issues rather than for business or uh, recreational or social life issues. Hong Kong recorded 48 new coronavirus infections today. All but two of them were locally acquired. Of the two, I'm sorry, of the local cases, 37 are linked to previous patients, while nine have no known source of transmission. Three more workers at the Kwai Ching Container Terminal have contracted the virus, taking the total number in that cluster to 23. Meanwhile, a 69-year-old man has died at Eastern Hospital, bringing the city's total number of fatalities linked to the pandemic to 67. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. The government has set out a list of scenarios under which officials should walk out of district council meetings. They include if councillors start singing songs that violate the basic law, as the administration puts it. Damon Pang has more. Officials have been regularly walking out of district council meetings since the pro-democracy camp's landslide victory in last November's polls. But now, it's set out in black and white exactly when they should be marching out. An internal circular from Chief Secretary Matthew Cheung says officials should leave if councillors chant slogans or sing songs that violate the national security law, the basic law, or the one country, two systems principle. No list of illegal songs is provided though. Meanwhile, if offensive or insulting language is being used during a meeting, officials should get up and go to uphold the dignity of the government, the circular says, unless the chairperson can address any concerns. Central and Western District Councillor Napo Wong says he's worried that officials from various government departments are now going to become even more antagonistic towards councillors. In the past, that is up to the council chairman to decide if the language is insulting or not. But under the new guidelines, the department has their own decision. The circular says officials should report any disrespectful treatment that continues to their department or bureau heads, and the chief secretary himself will decide whether officials should continue attending meetings or not. Officials can also skip meetings if councillors want to discuss matters beyond the district council's powers, for example, if the issue is considered to be a territory-wide matter. The chairman of Southern District Council, Lokin Hay of the Democratic Party, is not impressed. I think this guideline is blatantly telling us that the government is incorporative and it really hurts the council and people in the district. And they try to let district council disappointing the Hong Kong people or the people who vote for us. So I think it is an intentional attempt to undermine the district council. But the DAB's Frankie Ngan, who is a member of Kuntong District Council, says he thinks the circular just standardizes how officials should handle various situations. He says listing the scenarios as to when officials should walk out is helpful, adding that it's not fair that councillors can hurl insults at officials, but they cannot do the same back. Legal scholar Benny Tai says he feels somewhat relieved now he's left the University of Hong Kong following his dismissal after decades of service. Professor Tai says although he believes the rule of law in Hong Kong is dead, there's a chance it could be resurrected one day, and therefore there's still a need to educate people on the justice system. Priscilla Ng reports. Oh, yeah. 
A major headache for Benny Tai at the moment is what to do with all the papers and documents, and more than 2,000 books stashed in his office at the University of Hong Kong, where he's taught for almost 30 years. The HKU Governing Council decided last month to dismiss him over his criminal convictions last year in relation to the pro-democracy Occupy movement of 2014. Even though he's filed an appeal against the decision, the former associate professor of law doesn't hold out much hope of success, telling RTHK it's extremely regrettable that one of Hong Kong's top universities is unable to defend academic freedom. 我諗唔可以期望太高嘅對阿張長校長，佢始終喺香港嘅時間好短。但係你 ，I can't expect too much from current Vice Chancellor Zhang Xiang, as he's quite new to Hong Kong. But in my mind, the ideal university head should be brave enough to speak up in a society full of lies, he says. When asked how he feels about leaving a place where he's spent a huge part of his life, Professor Tai says he actually feels slightly relieved. 好似只飛鳥衝上天空，可能更加自由。It feels like a bird flying up into the sky. There is more freedom, he says, adding that while it may be the end of one phase in life, it's also the start of another. The 56-year-old was sentenced in April last year to 15 months in prison for two public nuisance-related charges over his role in the 79-day Occupy protests. He's currently out on bail pending an appeal, with a hearing to be held in March next year. In the meantime, he says he hopes to educate the public about the rule of law. 法治已死啦，咁我哋仲做呢啲法治教育嘅工作有冇意義咧 ？The rule of law may have died in Hong Kong, but nobody can dismiss the possibility of it coming back to life. We need to educate people and prepare for the rule of law to return, he said. The legal scholar has been described as naive for his various roles in the ongoing pro-democracy movement, including the organization of the pandemic's primaries for the now postponed Lechko elections. 天真并非系幼稚，天真只系一种单纯嘅信心。咁如果系 naivety doesn't mean immaturity. If naivety is a simple feeling of confidence, then yes, I admit I'm naive as I believe that justice will be served in this society. He says. 开始嘅时候咧。真係呢條路好似好少人同你行緊，但係咧就好奇怪嘅就係、是。When I first started going down this path, there were very few people walking along with me. But what was strange was the further we walked and the darker it got, the more people joined us along the way. He adds. Professor Tai says he will continue to retain this naivety and continue doing what he believes is right. Former pro-Beijing legislator Lam Tai Fai has been named the new head of RTHK's advisory board. Timmy Sung reports. Lam Tai Fai represented the industrial sector in Nashville from 2008 to 2016. These days, he is member of China's top advisory body, the CPPCC, and also chairman of the Polytechnic University Council. He replaces Yu Jinchen, a dentist by trade, who recently urged RTHK to provide more positive coverage of the national security law, and called for training for staff on how to promote a sense of national identity among Hong Kongers. In a statement, Secretary for Commerce and Economic Development Edward Yao says the new board chairman has rich experience in public service. And he is confident Mr. Lam can lead the board in helping RTHK to fully achieve the mission set out in its charter. Apart from Mr. Lam, the government has also appointed former iCable News Executive Director Ronald Chiu and former Law Society Chief Thomas So as board members. 
The RTHK program staff union says it will be listening and observing closely the words and actions of the board's new chairman. Gladys Chiu is head of the union. We expect the newly appointed chairman, Mr. Lam Taifai, to respect professional journalism and fully realize the value of diversity in our city. Um, the union would like to stress that the BOA is an advisory body which, um, according to the RTHK charter, should not interfere with the public broadcaster's daily operations. Um, with such understanding, we hope for a constructive relationship with the BOA. RTHK has welcomed the appointments, saying management hopes the new three arrivals will help the public broadcaster further its development. And the government has cut its GDP forecast for the year after confirming that Hong Kong's economy contracted by 9% in the second quarter. It's revising the yearly forecast from a range of negative 4 to 7% to minus 6 to 8% because of the effects of the pandemic. And it's time for some sport now. Football Look Ahead from the BBC. Well, the two big competitions in European football continue in their revamped formats. We know in the first Champions League semi-final, it will be Paris Saint-Germain versus RB Leipzig. Now, on Friday evening in Lisbon, it's the big one, a blockbuster quarter-final between Bayern Munich and Barcelona. The two clubs have been champions of Europe five times each. Munich will probably start slight favourites in this one. They have just won their eighth consecutive domestic title. They've been in superb form since football returned after the coronavirus lockdown. They also dismantled Chelsea in the last round with ease. Their opponents, Barcelona, are generally seen as an ageing squad, past the peak of their powers, but of course they still have Lionel Messi and with him they always have a chance. On Saturday night, Pep Guardiola's Manchester City take the stage as they meet the league inside Lyon. Now Lyon had rather a disappointing domestic season in the league before that was halted prematurely in April due to COVID-19. But Lyon do have a growing confidence in the Champions League this year. They knocked out the Italian champions Juventus in the last 16. Manchester City, however, should be too strong for them. And in the Europa League, being played out in Germany, Manchester United will meet the five times past winners Sevilla in the first semi-final on Sunday, while Inter Milan will face Shakhtar Donetsk on Monday. Football Look Ahead from the BBC. And Spain is tightening coronavirus restrictions nationwide, closing all bars and nightclubs and banning smoking outdoors where it's not possible to maintain a distance of two metres. It comes amid fears about a rise in new infections announced and there. And a reminder of our top stories tonight. The Legal Aid Department rejects a claim from a student shot in the chest by the police, saying the officer only used reasonable force. Lawmaker Ted Hoy reports being struck by a car he says has been following him for days. And foreign domestic workers accuse police of targeting them over coronavirus gathering restrictions. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. A number of doctors' organisations have jointly called on the government to list the new coronavirus as an occupational disease. They say this can better protect the rights of medical workers who won't have to face lengthy investigations after contracting the virus because of their work. The president of the Hong Kong Medical Association, Dr Choi Kin, spoke to RTHK's Anna Marie Evans. If you look at an occupational disease, then if you work in an environment or you're working uh, as a medical attendant, 
uh, in the hospital in, or in a place where there is COVID, then uh, it is assumed that uh, the, the COVID is contracted during work or uh, in the workplace without too much uh, 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 argument or too much investigation. Uh, right now, um, if you uh, contract uh, COVID uh, 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 as a medical personnel, it may be argued that you contract it outside of the hospital. You are, you are having dinner with uh, other people or you are having uh, going to places where you should not be going to and uh, you may not be compensated for the uh, COVID. So uh, once uh, now we already have um, nurses and doctors and um, other medical, uh, paramedical staff uh, developing the COVID in, in the hospital or in workplace uh, clinics and so on. So uh, there, there is adequate evidence that uh, COVID should be listed as an occupational disease so that uh, it will be easier or to facilitate claims uh, for the uh, patients in the future. Yes, are infected medical workers facing difficulties seeking compensation? Well, uh, uh, we do not know at this point in time, but uh, 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 the 78-year-old doctor visiting uh, old people's home, old age home, uh, it is suggested that he may not have contracted the uh, illness uh, in the OH home, but from outside. So uh, this is arguable. Once you label it as an occupational disease, then the, uh, if you have been to the workplace or um, it is related to the work, then uh, it is automatically uh, claimable uh, for the for the for the for the doctor or the medical personnel. So should this be medical personnel or could it also be expanded to care home employees? And what about restaurant workers? Uh, no, uh, it, it, it is uh, the occupational disease definition is uh, it is related to the work or to the workplace. So it, it, it may extend to clinic uh, staff and, and uh, in addition to outpatient clinics and uh, hospitals, but not restaurants or movie theatres. What about elderly homes? Uh, it, 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 it may or may not. We, we have to see that uh, what, what the uh, Committee for uh, Occupational Disease has to decide. Now, the number of new COVID cases has remained in the double digits for days. Do you think that the situation is coming under control? I think uh, we are lucky and it, it, it is stable. And we are not having a massive increase in numbers. So... Uh, I, I'm glad and I hope that uh, the number will be down to uh, a single digit uh, maybe in a month or two. The authorities in Belarus have begun to release demonstrators detained in days of protests about Sunday's disputed election. Friends and relatives watched as groups of men and women emerged from a detention centre in Minsk. Many of those freed spoke of beatings and abuse. The BBC's Abdul Jalil Abdurasilov has this report. Three men walk out of a large grey metal door, smiling shyly as they are greeted by the crowd outside the jail. They were detained on Sunday, the day when protests in Belarus started. Tearful people in the crowd desperately show them photos of relatives on their phones. Have you seen this person? they ask them. A total of 7,000 people have been detained across the country so far and often their relatives have no idea where to find them. They come to jails and detention centers hoping to learn about their whereabouts. 
My son Pavel was detained on Monday. He was coming out of the metro. He'd been taking his child to hospital. He has three small children. We've been looking for him for three days. We only just found out he's here. Please help us to get him out. These former detainees will never forget the days they spent behind the prison walls. They tell us about the brutal beatings and torture detainees face inside. They beat people ferociously, with impunity. We could hear women being beaten. I don't understand such cruelty. Overnight, there were no serious clashes in Minsk, only small gatherings of people in several districts that were dispersed by the police. A brutal police crackdown seems to be taking effect. However, the movement has adapted. And today, workers in a number of factories across the country went on strike. I'm at the factory that makes famous trucks called Bellas. The workers of this plant decided to go on strike against the violence that authorities are using to disperse the crowds. About probably 200 workers are outside of the building. Some of them are wearing their orange helmets. Local people have gathered outside and chanting in support of the workers and drivers are honking their car horns to support them as well. The local mayor soon arrived to speak to the strikers. Workers gathered around him and angrily demanded an end to the violence. In front of my eyes, police beat a small girl and threw two kids into a police van, this man shouts. What was also painful for these workers was that special forces and riot police used the buses their factory makes to crack down on protesters. They felt they had to do something to stop it. Crowds that gathered around the factory gates chanted leave. The word has become a symbol of the people's desire to finally rid themselves of President Alexander Lukashenko after 26 years in power. The massive cleanup operation continues in Beirut after last week's catastrophic explosion which devastated large parts of the city. And aid is now being handed out in the Lebanese capital where around 300,000 people have been left homeless, according to the city's governor. The BBC's Tom Bateman met one young couple whose apartment near the port took the full impact of the blast. This is the blood of my brother. Eddie Bittar takes me into what's left of his home wrestling with a door smashed off its hinges and smeared with blood. He was sitting here. So I was just sitting here finishing my work and I went out and this is where I saw a huge white cloud, like really like a mushroom. And I was like blown away, literally like seven meters. I can show you where, where I, I hit. Now the sounds from a shattered city drift through this apartment. There are no windows, just giant holes in the masonry. Eddie says he rushed out with his badly wounded brother and his wife Yara followed. In shock, she began filming. I, I, I couldn't understand what was happening. The, the hospital 
right next to the house was completely destroyed. The other one was also destroyed. We, we couldn't reach anything, anyone, even the, the, the Red Cross or the ambulance couldn't come. They were all destroyed on the streets. Our cars, we couldn't move any cars. Eddie's brother is now recovering. Beirut's psychological wounds might be harder to treat. And do you know what you'll do now? Where are you staying? Where can you go? My sister, she just gave us a house, but I can tell you that I know that we will rebuild this house and I will invite you, Tom, to come and to see how and what we made of this house. The strain of the last week seems unbearable. Eddie embraces Yara. She is comforted by her husband. We would stay here, we would raise our kids here, and no one is going anywhere. And, and nothing like this will ever happen again. Nothing. Nothing should ever happen again. Because no one should live what, what, what we live and what we witnessed. And, and this guy, my husband, is a hero because he's holding himself together, but I know he's hurting inside. This is his house. He, he, he was born here. He was born and raised here. It feels like this grief and anger is all over the streets. Lebanese people's famous resilience is being tested more than ever. A country brought even closer to collapse by its man-made disaster. Tomorrow marks the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, the day that Japan's Emperor Hirohito went on radio for the first time ever and announced his country's unconditional surrender. A week earlier, the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had been destroyed by American atom bombs. 75 years on, the history of what happened during the war in Asia is still hotly contested. Many Japanese see their country as a victim of America's atom bombs in China and Korea. Many view Japan's post-war apologies as incomplete and insincere. So why is it that agreement and reconciliation are still so hard to find? From Tokyo, the BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes reports. With more and more of her troops landing at Shanghai, pushing on towards Nanking and into the interior. It is December the 13th, 1937, and Japanese troops are pouring into the Chinese capital, Nanjing. One of the worst atrocities of World War II is about to be unleashed. In the following weeks, tens of thousands of Chinese soldiers and civilians will be slaughtered here. More than 80 years later, what happened in Nanjing should be settled history, but it isn't. It's August the 9th, 2020, an important anniversary in Japan, the day America dropped the atom bomb on Nagasaki and the day the Soviet Union declared war on Japan. On the streets of Tokyo, far-right groups are out in force in their black and white vans. The public address systems turned up to 11. Close to the Japanese parliament, the way is blocked by riot police. The government is useless, they shout. You are idiots. These men are angry at what they see as the neutering of their country. It's subjugation to a war history written by America and China and Korea. Takahiro Ezaki has slicked back hair and a permanent scowl. He leads a group called the Narashino Brotherhood. First of all, the Nanjing massacre does not exist. If there was a massacre, where did all the dead bodies go? There is no evidence. It's all a lie. 
So now down outside the Russian embassy and there are dozens and dozens of riot police. The right wingers are here because this is another piece of highly contested history. They say that at the end of the Second World War, Russia stole a bunch of Japan's territory, islands off the north coast of Hokkaido. And they are saying Russia must give them back. There is something theatrical about these protests. But the belief that Japan was really a victim of World War II is widely held here. John Deluri is a professor of Chinese history at Yonsei University in Seoul. He says the cause of Japan's historical amnesia goes all the way back to 1945. The United States, which was the occupying power in Japan, did not want to get into the history question, wanted everyone to move forward. And you had tens of millions of victims in China and Korea uh, who ever since are saying, wait a second, wait a second, that's not okay, I'm not ready to move on. On Saturday, Emperor Naruhito will lead the annual commemoration for Japan's two and a half million war dead. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, as he did last year, will recommit Japan to the path of peace and reconciliation with its former enemies. But in China and Korea, Mr. Abe is seen as a stumbling block to reconciliation. His grandfather helped prosecute the war in China and was detained by the Americans as a suspected war criminal. Koichi Nakano is a professor of politics at Sofia University in Tokyo. So these are the descendants of the leaders of wartime Japan. Their grandsons are in power right now. And so no wonder there is a sense that there is a, so much continuity. It, it is very important for Japan to try to renew its leadership. And without that, I don't think it's possible to come to terms with the wartime deeds. After 75 years, Mr. Abe says it is time to move on. But as long as Japan continues to see itself as a victim rather than a perpetrator of the war, real reconciliation will remain hard to achieve. Those stories were part of the Newswrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. The symptoms of COVID-19 can be mild. Don't go to work or school if feeling unwell. Wear a mask and consult a doctor promptly. Ask doctors at accident and emergency departments, general outpatient clinics, private hospitals, or clinics for free testing provided by the Department of Health. Return the specimen to a designated collection point or use the door-to-door -door specimen collection service for a fee. Test promptly for early detection. Radio 3 Weather. A look at the weather forecast for tonight and tomorrow, mainly fine apart from isolated showers. Minimum temperature will be around 28 degrees. It'll be very hot during the day, maximum of around 33 degrees Celsius, with winds that are light to moderate south to southeasterlies. The outlook? Sunny intervals with a few showers early to midweek next week. Currently, the air quality health index is low with readings of 1 and 2. Air temperatures 29 degrees Celsius. Relative humidity stands at 83%. And the very hot weather warning is in effect. <laughs> Back to the music now, Simon Wilson sitting in for Uncle Ray, the world's most durable DJ who's sheltering in place from the current COVID spike. Assorted ballads and easy listening through till one. Little piece of you, a little piece of me, well, 
from the movie The Falcon and the Snowman, David Bowie and Pat Mahini. This is not America. This is RTHK Radio 3. I'm Simon Wilson, sitting in for Uncle Ray, playing your requests. Looking for assorted ballads and easy listening to take us through till one. Two double three double eight two six six is the number. Coming up in the show, we've got England Dan and John Ford Coley, Abba, Patsy Klein, some Doris Day, Frank Sinatra, all sorts of goodies. Stick around. <laughs> 